Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 352 of the podcast. It's November 18th, 2019. Joining me today is Frederick Southwick, MD. He is a professor of medicine and is also the director of patient care quality and safety in the Division of Hospitalist Medicine at the University of Florida. Fred is the author of many books, including Critically Ill, a five-point plan to cure healthcare delivery. So today, Fred will talk about why he shifted from studying infectious diseases to focusing on hospital medicine and healthcare improvement. This was driven partially by two very personal episodes with problems in the healthcare system that his then-wife and he both suffered from. Fred was appointed later as a Harvard University Advanced Leadership Fellow, where he studied business and public health. Now, Fred was exposed to lean initially through MIT professor Steven Spear. Steve has been a guest on this podcast many times, and they've published an article together where they call for, quote, all academic physicians caring for patients to focus on systems and quality improvement. So here today, uh, Fred also shares reflections on how he personally shifted from blaming other doctors to looking at systems as the primary driver of quality and safety problems. He also teaches lean to medical students, and he has two public classes available on the Coursera platform. They're on the topic of fixing healthcare, and the second of those courses has a deeper focus on lean. So if you want to find links to all of that, you can go to leanblog.org slash 352. Well, again, we are joined today by Dr. Fred Southwick. Fred, how are you? Great, Mark. Very well. Well, it's uh, really good to have you here on the podcast, and I'd like to start off asking you to you know, introduce yourself to the listeners and uh, about your background, whatever you'd like to share about your, your career, and we'll, we'll talk more about um, the work that you're doing uh, and the work that you have been doing, but go, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Florida, College of Medicine, and I actually, my background is predominantly infectious diseases, and I was chief of infectious disease for 20 years, but then I decided that I wanted to re, uh, readjust my career and move into quality and safety because I saw so many problems in the hospital and every hospital that I wanted to be part of the solution and apply some of the uh, skills that I had in basic research in infectious diseases to uh, quality in healthcare. And what I did in 2010 is I actually uh, had a sabbatical and went to a Harvard Business School where I was an advanced leadership uh, fellow. And I took courses in the Harvard Business School and the School of Public Health to learn more about how the business world improves quality and safety. And then uh, from there, I have uh, continued in the area of quality and safety. I'm now a member. I'm actually in the hospitalist division because hospitalists really face many of the, these systems challenges. And I'm now the uh, director of quality and safety in the division of hospitalist medicine. And so I'd be curious to hear more when, when you said you saw there were so many problems related to, to quality and safety. And, and I know this ended up affecting you personally, uh, but you, but you were no, uh, you were seeing 
a pattern or trends before it, it even really affected you, right? Uh, yes. Well, I'm actually, the original event that set me off on this path was in uh, 1988. And that was uh, my former wife developed a very rare allergy to penicillin that caused uh, her body to actually attack its blood vessels and was associated with a massive elevation of eosinophils, which are a very aggressive cell in your body that are that go up when you have an allergy. And those cells actually were attacking your body and causing a coagulation. In other words, her blood, her vessels started to clot. And she developed a pulmonary embolus, a clot to her lungs, a myocardial infarct or heart attack, and uh, really ended up in the ICU with literally less than a 10% chance of survival. And during the initial presentation, multiple doctors uh, didn't make the diagnosis and then just dropped her once they they made a simple diagnosis, each of them, and then passed her on to somebody else and never followed up and never helped in her care. And I was so upset with the way that she was managed that I actually, in 1993, I wrote an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a very scathing article called Who's Caring for Mary? And in that uh, article, I I really took all the physicians at task in academic medicine saying that they thought that research by their actions, they thought they felt that research and family were more important than patient care and that they needed to all try harder. So that's where I started. And I used, I actually gave grand rounds at multiple universities making this, this uh, drawing this conclusion and talking about Mary's case. However, in 2007, I heard Steve Spear give a talk on the DNA of Toyota production system and how it could be applied to healthcare. I was sitting in the second row and I actually started to cry because I realized that I had totally blamed the individuals, the physicians, when the system that they were working in was woefully defective. And I, at that point, I really uh, began reading about Toyota production system and really began focusing on lean. And it was over that next three years, I began to look through the eyes of lean and looking at all the waste, patients sitting for long times in the ER, uh, patients getting the wrong medications, right. uh, doctors not communicating with each other lack of coordination of care. And it just became more and more glaring to me. And I personally felt that I could not stand by any longer. And, uh, you know, this personal experience had been very motivating for a long time. And I had focused, I think, to somewhat inappropriately blaming those individuals, mm -hmm. which I think is something that was done for many, many years, rather than looking and into the systems and blaming the systems. Yeah. Well, and, and to not blame you for that. I mean, you know, that that reaction is a, a predominant part of maybe not just healthcare culture, but I've seen that culture in other organizations where individuals are being blamed. And, um, they're being told to be more careful. They're being told to try harder when the system isn't really supporting that. So I, I 
but it's good to see that you you've you've come around and 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 evolved i guess on some of that thinking right absolutely yeah i you know i one of the uh, statements that i i tell my medical students over and over again every system is designed to produce the results it achieves and therefore i always look at the system when there's an error uh, and see how that system uh, encourage that individual to make an error. And I would, I think, you know, a lot of, there's been a huge debate on this and I actually wrote a paper, uh, uh, revisiting Mary's case, applying lean to it with Steve Spear, actually, we're co-authors on the paper. It was in academic medicine and the reviewers were very harsh in, because I said that most of the time it's the system and not the individual. And these reviewers said, no, you're letting the individuals off the hook. Right. And I, I, you know, I've kept that in mind. When I have looked, I would say 95% of the time it's the system. Mm -hmm. And there are very few individuals that don't deeply care about patients and aren't trying their hardest. And they should not be punished. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm curious to go back. There's, there's a lot to unpack, you know, what, what you've talked about here, but so in revisiting the case with, uh, you know, from 1988 with, with your then wife, you, you, you talk about diagnosis error. And then it also sounds like, it sounded like you, you were describing maybe some communication breakdowns or a process problem in terms of why was the system of care designed in a way where doctors passed her on? as you described, can you, can you elaborate on, on how you started to see that as more of a systems issue? Yes. Um, what uh, Steve Spear uh, asked us to do when we wrote the article was what happened, what should have happened, why did it happen and how can we correct it and what systems changes can we make? So I went through Mary's case and it turns out, and, and I teach medical students a course called Fixing Healthcare Delivery. And I start with Mary's case because her case illustrates, I think, the five key elements that, are, that go wrong in healthcare. First of all, um, our, our, we do not have standardized approach to many uh, illnesses and many procedures in healthcare. Everybody wants to do them in a different way. Yeah. And we need to follow lean, which uh, emphasizes standardization and value stream mapping to improve our efficiency and reliability of the procedures that we use. Secondly, what I realized, and, and in Mary's case, there was a new intern or an inexperienced intern who was trying to manage her heparin. And he uh, grossly underdosed her heparin and did not increase the rate of infusion. And today we have a standardized approach. At that time, nurses were not allowed to increase their heparin rate. Mm. Today, there are very set standardized protocols. And now we use instead of it was a PTT at that time. Now we use fractionated heparin. When the fractionated heparin is too low, there is a protocol where the nurse can increase the infusion rate so that nobody is under anticoagulated. And that's why she developed the pulmonary embolus. The second big issue was teamwork. 
um, we had a, they had a rotating inexperienced intern and on that same team was a very experienced intern, a very experienced uh, senior resident and a very experienced attending. However, they did not work, they did not communicate well. The, the experienced intern did not help the inexperienced intern and did not, and he was clearly overwhelmed and could not keep up with what was going on. And at that time was a paper record. And this intern couldn't even fill out the lab data so that nobody knew that her, she had a subtherapeutic uh, anticoagulation level until she had the, uh, had the pulmonary embolus. So, and then the nurses knew that the, there was insufficient heparin, but they were afraid to talk to the team because at that time it was very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. So that's the second. Then the third uh, was what's emphasized, I think, in most quality and safety courses is the nature of human error and, and why we make errors and how we can create conditions that prevent errors. And then when an error is made, how we analyze it, use root cause analysis and PDSA cycles to improve that. Yeah. Then the, the fourth is leadership. And what happened in this particular team is the attending was more involved in his research. He was a very famous uh, clinical researcher and the, he did not take uh, charge of the team and made no decisions. He just watched Mary deteriorated and made no therapeutic changes and called 10 different consults, all of which worked in parallel. And uh, he could not integrate their recommendations. And therefore, nothing happened until I changed the care to another doctor who actually looked at the entire case, a cardiologist, and decided that she needed cort uh, corticosteroids. And when he gave corticosteroids, within 24 hours, she rapidly improved. Mm -hmm. but she came very close to death before that happened. Mm. And then uh, the next element is organizing. So, and so leadership, there have, you have to be a leader and step up to the plate. And secondly, you have to be willing to lead change. In order for our system to be improved, it has to change. And one of the big problems that I've seen uh, and, and happened when I spoke out about this case uh, believe me, that institution, I have never been able to go back to that institution. Mm. And when it was reviewed, I wrote the art, this article, Who's Caring for Mary? The dean at that school called a committee together, and their conclusion was that I was overly emotionally, and I had interfered with the care of the patient, and it was my fault that she did not do well. And so I was trying to bring about change by writing this article, and I was basically looked on as a troublemaker as a result. So, so leader, leading change has been discouraged in healthcare. It needs to be valued and it needs to be uh, people who are adaptive leaders, leaders of change need to be promoted. Yeah. And then the final element is learning to organize people to bring about change and using campaign methods, uh, just like Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. just like uh, Mandela, has done, just as Gandhi has done, to bring about that change. So you don't make change alone. You actually create a leadership group of like-minded individuals. You use uh, um, large gatherings. You use personal narrative. 
to bring about those changes that we need. And every quality improvement project I've discovered, there is going to be resistance to change, and you are going to need to use campaign methods to bring that change about. So Mary's case illustrates all of those things. So um, you you talk about the phrase adaptive leadership, and that makes me think, and you mentioned Harvard, um, Ronald Heifetz, I imagine. Did you study with him? I spoke to him a lot and read his books. I didn't get a chance. I didn't have time to take a course by him, but I did take a course at the Kennedy School where he is on organizing people, power, and change with Marshall Gantz, who is a superb he actually ran, uh, he worked with Cesar Chavez mm-hmm. uh, with the grape growers way, uh, way back. Then he also ran Nancy Pelosi's first campaign. Mm-hmm. And he has been instrumental in a lot of political campaigns and a lot of social change campaigns. And actually is now has a network throughout the world of individuals who practice uh, his methodology of bringing about change and organizing. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, my wife um, is a big fan of uh, Heifetz's work, and I think she saw him give a lecture at Harvard when she was doing grad school um, down the river uh, at, at yes. MIT. And I've read some, of, I've read his book Leadership yeah. on the Line, and he talks about what you brought up, and then um, Dr. Rob Hackett, who was um, the guest in episode three forty one of the podcast, talking about how when you're sort of trying to turn up the heat to try to help spark change, this is mixing metaphors, but the organizations have um, antibodies and they have a way of fighting back. You're the, you're the, you're the infectious disease um, specialist, but, but, but what Dr. Habit, what Dr. Hackett talked about was um, being blamed and and punished and um, bullied for, for bringing up, I think really practical ideas um, for, for improving patient safety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and Ron Heifetz um, really talks about a zone, a productive zone of uh, disequilibrium, psychological disequilibrium. In order for there to be change, the individuals who are changing the way they are doing something have to feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. There will be a sense of uncertainty. There will be a sense of loss. And if you see you bring, you implement a change and everybody is happy, you can be sure they're not doing it. Mm-hmm. The way that people deal with disequilibrium is they pretend to do it and don't. The other solution, the other way to fight to reduce that disequilibrium is to attack the individual leader who is leading that change. And that's what Dr. Hackett was experiencing. Yeah. And they mischaracterize that individual. And that's why I think it's, uh, that's why you need to use organizing methods and create a team so that the lightning doesn't strike one individual, it's spread out, and it's much less likely that that individual who's leading that change will end up being fired or dismissed in some way. Yeah. And uh, you know, they, the the danger of change has been well recognized uh, since the 1500s. Machiavelli wrote about leading change, and what he said. I don't have the specific quote. But basically what he said is that when you bring about a change in the way things are being done, those that would benefit from change do not believe you can accomplish it. And those that are opposed to the change are in power. And they are, and it's a very dangerous condition 
that you are setting yourself into when you try to lead change. And unfortunately, that's still true. But I think Ron Heifetz's paradigm of keeping the disagreement in a productive zone, that is, you don't want people to get too upset. Right. They have to be a little upset. If they get too upset, then everything blows up and everybody uh, starts screaming about how, 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 how unfair that the changes are and about how that the leaders that are doing that are, are monsters and they need to be uh, removed from power. So you've got to be careful. And I have two analogies for this that I really like. One is the combustible engine. In order to, for the engine to produce power and move forward, it has to create heat and it creates explosions. But the engine also has a cooling system. And so it never lets the engine overheat. And that's just what an adaptive leader needs to do. The second analogy I use is you can think of yourself as a beekeeper. <laughs> and uh, what a beekeeper does is they have to move very slowly when they're trying to get the honey from the hive. If they move too quickly, they will be stung. And the other thing is they wear thick jackets to or have thick skin because even though they're trying to get the honey and they move slowly, they are going to get stung from time to time. So, uh, and then they use smoke to soothe the bees. Well, what you need as an adaptive leader, you need to use empathy and you need to be listening and you need to, to reflect back this strain and stress this is creating, but then point out why this is helpful. So those two analogies have helped me. And I now, I used to go right at these problems and, and because I thought that they, there was a no-brainer uh, that these things should be done and everybody would agree. But now I know that's not the case. And there will always be individuals who resist that change. And you just have to be empathetic. And if you feel that this is getting too high, you just back off. Yeah. Quiet down for a while and then let everything settle up and then restart. But you have to be courageous and you have to be persistent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, before we started recording, you were telling me a, a story about bees from your childhood. I, I think the listeners would, would if yeah, you, I, I think uh, I, I, by my nature, I, I, I like to be a troublemaker. I like to bring about change. And uh, when I was a little, I was about three years old, I was staying at my grandmother's in Nebraska and she had a giant honeysuckle bush and I, she would let me out in the backyard, and I loved to go to the honeysuckle bush and play with the bees. Mm-hmm. And I got stung over and over again. And my grandmother would get so upset with me and said, Freddie, you can't do that. And I would go out again, and I would play with the bees and get stung. So I think it's just in my nature to, to want to sort of churn things up for the good. I mean, it's all about... The goals and you you don't make trouble just to make trouble, but you have to create a little disequilibrium in order to bring about that change. And and you've got to be willing to be stung. Yes, you have to accept that. And and I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Maybe maybe from sports, from you know playing football, you know you get tackled. You're going to play the game. You're going to get hurt. That's just part of the game. But it's still fun. Yeah. So before we talk about, um, you know, what you've done to, to teach lean and, 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 and do some work to improve 
um, patient care, which, which, you know, sometimes it stings and sometimes that's fun um, when, when, when you're able to help drive improvement. But you, you mentioned your writing and I wanted you to maybe kind of touch on something that you wrote that was published in the New York Times in 2013, where you talked about um, the case with uh, your wife, Mary, but the headline of the article, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes, losing my leg to a medical error. That grabs yeah. your attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, what happened is after I, I went to, to, I took, I did the fellowship at Harvard, I, I wrote a book, Critically Ill, a five-point plan to cure healthcare delivery. And I start off with Mary's case, and I have those five elements that I described in the book. And the pub- book was published in June of 2012. In July of 2012, I was at the beach and I was actually paddle boarding um, on, on, on Jackson, Jacksonville Beach in the Atlantic Ocean. And I noticed that my left calf was cramping up really badly. And I had no idea why this was happening. And I thought, wow, maybe I put too much pressure on it. But the problem is, for the, the next month, my calf continually hurt. And I didn't put two to two together. It hurt more when I walked. And in retrospect, um, that was ischemic pain. And then I didn't, I didn't really uh, put two to two together until after a month, my foot turned white. And then I knew that my leg was not getting blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to the, I was hospitalized. They did an angiogram. And what they found is that that's just dye in the veins or in the arteries. And what they found is that all the vessels in my body were normal, except for those below my left knee. Mm-hmm. And there were no vessels, no vessels at all. And so they, the vascular surgeon said, we're, there's no place to bypass because you have to have a downstream place to link into. There was none. And so I said, what does that mean? Well, they said, well, I, they wouldn't say. But I knew that that meant I would have to have an amputation. And so um, that's uh, originally they said, well, why don't you think about it? Why don't you go home and think about it? Because, uh, you know, this is a big decision. Well, I went home and, and the, the ischemic pain, the pain from this, when I would when I would lie, put my leg up, it would turn, it would turn white and start to hurt within 10 minutes. When I put my leg down, it would turn red and start to hurt within 10 minutes. So I could not sleep for more than 10 minutes at a time for two weeks. And I said, I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. I want an, I, let's go ahead and do the amputation. And they tried a below the knee amputation. And it, it, uh, after two weeks, I got back to the surgeon and he said, uh, and it was it was oozing a gelatinous dark material. It wasn't an infection. It turned out that it was necrotic fat because the the uh, the limb was not getting enough blood supply. And the surgeon just shook his head and said, "This isn't working. We're going to have to do an above the knee amputation." Mm-hmm. Now I I'm an infectious disease doctor. I know that when you have an ischemic limb, you're in great danger of developing uh, infection and sepsis. So I, this was a Friday afternoon, a Friday morning that he told me this. And I was with my wife, Kathy, and we were both extremely upset. And because when you have a below the knee, your knee works well, and you actually can walk pretty normally. When you have above the knee amputation, your function is dramatically impaired. Mm. It's much, much harder to walk on hills or up and down stairs. 
everything becomes much more difficult. So I was, I did not want that. And, but at this point, now I had a necrotic limb that I could get sepsis. So I said to the surgeon, so are you going to operate this afternoon? And he says, well, no, we're going to wait till Tuesday. So I had to sit for the entire weekend worrying that I might die of sepsis. So all of a sudden, the above the knee amputation, I wanted that above the knee amputation because I wanted to live. And fortunately, the above the knee amputation went well, and I have been able to adapt. But the big question was, why did this happen? Right. And when I started, when the dust settled and I started to work out and build my strength, I actually lost 25 pounds during that time because I had four different surgeries. I dropped down, I normally weighed 180, I dropped down to 153. So I had to start, I wanted to start training and I, I got a, a trainer who was able, and I was able to get my weight and strength back. But while I was working out, I said, you know, why did, why were the vessels in my left leg missing? And what was different, this wasn't a systemic problem because all my other vessels were normal. So what happened to my left leg that didn't happen to my right? The only thing I could come up with was in 1995, I had an Achilles tendon repair on the left uh, ankle, left Achilles. So I went back and I got the O report. And what I discovered is they had placed a tourniquet above my knee uh, for two and a half hours. And a normal Achilles tendon repair takes 15 minutes. For some reason, mine took two and a half hours. And the longest you're supposed to leave a tourniquet on is for one hour. Oh, gosh. And there's an alarm that goes off. So in retrospect, the combination of a prolonged surgery, the leaving of a tourniquet on for two and a half hours had damaged all the arteries below my knee. Wow. And that is why I lost my leg. And uh, I can tell you when I published this, the administration in my hospital uh, were furious. When the New York Times article was published. Yes. And I was ostracized from the institution I was actually uh, director of new quality and, and uh, improvement initiatives in the health system. I suddenly lost that job. And I was persona non grata for three years. Wow. And this, and, and so as a consequence of this event, I am a strong proponent of, of supporting patients' voice mm-hmm. when, when individuals that are harmed. And actually I wrote a, a paper in BMJ quality and safety with uh, a wonderful uh, a patient advocate, uh, Julia Hallisey, uh, in which we actually reviewed. She has a website through the Empowered Patient Coalition. Yes. And she has a survey where anybody that is harmed can fill out this very detailed survey. And so we were able to collate the results of 696 patients and, fam- uh, and family members who paid, whose family member had been harmed. And we actually did both a quantitative and qualitative analysis of what happens to patients when they're harmed. And what we found in, in re- virtually all patients, over 90% of patients, those individuals who were harmed were ostracized and all communication stopped. And when you also talked about during their hospitalization, a major theme was the doctors didn't listen to me. I warned them that something was going wrong or the nurse didn't listen to me. And then the other theme was they didn't respect me. 
that I felt disrespected and that we were talked down to. And another theme was that uh, the individuals that were uh, fearful of harm wanted to help and co-manage and share in decisions. And they were prevented from doing that. And that people, patients that are harmed and families that under suffer from family members being harmed, they want to be part of the solution. They don't really want to sue anybody. Right. That's not what they want. They want, but when the health system ostracizes them, they have no choice. And, and uh, I really think uh, that, that the whole approach to malpractice needs to be changed. And, and the university of Michigan actually has brought about uh, that kind of change uh, where instead of deny and defend now they, the university of Michigan, what they do is they actually uh, when there's an error, they quickly investigate it with a root cause analysis. If they find there is, uh, there is accountability, the institution made an error they, they, they actually uh, divulge or tell, tell the patient and family that an error was made. They describe how they're going to prevent that from ever happening again. And they have an insurance adjuster who actually provides remuneration because those patients do require money to overcome that injury or, and that loss. Right. And they give them fair compensation. And that method has been dramatically reduced, actually, liability costs reduced the time to settlement and meant that the money from the, from the malpractice goes to the patient rather than the lawyers. So I, I think it's really an outstanding approach that I think all of our institutions should, should embrace. And, and I can speak from personal experience how awful it feels to be ostracized when you point out there's a problem. So how much of this, maybe let, let's, let's shift and talk about the teaching that you're doing. Um, and, you know, how much of this, whether it's learning about lean or changing the culture around teamwork and hierarchy and uh, focusing on safety and quality, how much of that requires generational change and, and, and how much influences they're from trying to affect um, the next generation of physicians and, uh, and leaders. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're, Mark, you're analyzing that beautifully. I, uh, what I just decided uh, or assessed after going through trying to bring about change in the hospital, that, that those physicians who have been trained for prolonged periods of time, a significant percentage, percentage of them are, are, don't really want to want change and, and they're, they're comfortable with the way things are. Mm-hmm. And so I've realized that the constituency that I need to reach is the physicians in training. They do not have a set system yet. They don't have a set opinion yet. And if you can catch them before they get into the system too long and accept the way things are, and if they're not, if they don't understand systems, they will think that this, that system, that's the way it is. And that's the way it should be. But then it's too late. So uh, what I decided to do is I, you know, I wrote my book and as, as we all know, unless you're world famous, your books don't sell and you don't get a very large audience. So what I decided to do 
I learned about the University of Florida, there is a branch of Coursera. Mm-hmm. And Coursera is a massive open online educational uh, called MOOC uh, that uh, curriculum that that is uh, in multiple universities. I think it started at Stanford, but it's at Yale, it's at, at Penn, it's it's in universities all over the world. Actually, I think there are now four hundred universities participate. Anyway, I decided to create a course based on my book, which I called Fixing Healthcare Delivery. And that Coursera course has turned out my book maybe sold 2,000. The course actually uh, captured 35,000 students from 150 countries. So I was able to get my message across as to what I saw were the important components for improving healthcare. And I created the course in a way that patients as well as physicians and nurses and others in healthcare could understand. I got rid of all the doctor speak. And I, the other important thing, which is emphasized by Marshall Gantz, is that I had personal, many personal narratives, many of the stories that I've experienced and I've seen and I know about, so that each element, there are cases that illustrate the issues that, that I'm, I'm concerned about. So after I got out of Coursera, I said, you know, I should be teaching our fourth-year students this course. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is I started by, uh, first, I just had a seminar, and I gave them each a copy of my book, and we would meet in person um, uh, every day for uh, two weeks. And it was quite cumbersome because we had to reserve a room, I had to find parking places, the students had to find parking places, and then... I, you know, I got a few students. I would get about eight a year. And I did that for two years. I started in 2015. But then I decided maybe I could do this virtually, just like the Coursera course. And I used Canvas, which is the uh, large platform many universities use. Mm-hmm. And I created uh, all the videos. Uh, they do the teaching videos. And there, there are about 30 teaching videos, each about uh, 10 minutes in duration. And so there are eight modules. And then I have six virtual conferences using Zoom where we meet virtually to discuss the videos. And what I do in those uh, discussions, I have them share their personal experiences related to the videos. And in those, over 50% of the time is taken by the students contributing their ideas. So what's happened is I have learned as much from them as they have learned from me. And uh, what I find is these students really are become, feel very empowered, very motivated to bring about change. And at the end of the course, I do feel that virtually all of them feel that they can make a difference when they get out into, into the world and become interns and residents. The other thing I have done is I've kept track of the alumni from that course. And we meet every three months on Zoom uh, so I have interns and residents all over the United States that actually share in their experiences and how the lessons that I taught them are being applied. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would say that my conclusion so far is they see the problems. They now understand the problems in whatever system they're in. They do not feel empowered to bring about change. Mm-hmm. And that the quality improvement curriculum at most uh, health systems is woefully deficient. 
and that unfortunately there are very few faculty that are able to mentor residents uh, to bring about the changes that we need. And I don't have a good solution for that. I think we're going to have to wait for this generation to become faculty members who understand and are able to teach these principles. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Coursera course is um, something that people can access. I'll also link to that in the blog post for the episode, or you can Google uh, Coursera fixing healthcare delivery and, um, and you can pull that, um, you can pull that course up. Mark, the other thing that I've done is I've, I started with the course with the five principles, but I have realized as have you that the answer is not to have be reactive and just do root cause analysis every time there's an error and do PDSA cycles, that the only way we're really going to get these errors, these preventable errors down, is to create an integrated system within our health system, within each health system. And the, the model for that is lean or Toyota production system. Therefore, about a year, two years ago, I, I actually went to Virginia Mason uh, Institute, which teaches lean, uh, and that's the hospital system that has really implemented lean fully. Yeah. Uh, and I learned the advanced lean, and then I created a second core care, it's Coursera course, Fixing Healthcare 2.0 Advanced Lean. And that course does now have 2,200 students, um, and it's designed for healthcare professionals. And so I'm hoping that that will spread lean uh, to other areas and to professionals that are already in the system. And, uh, you know, I don't know, but I'm hoping that that will bring up also help to bring about change. Yeah. So I will link to that um, as well. Um, but, you know, what, what, what are the most important things for physicians to learn about lean and, and, and where, 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 where do you start or what are some of the high level takeaways? You know, you mentioned systems, not accepting the status quo. Um, but, but what are some of the other core messages that you try to get across to them? Well, the key is we all uh, healthcare systems, as you know, are among the most highly complex systems there are because there are multiple, multiple steps for each patient when they come into the hospital or the clinic until they leave, uh, they leave uh, and receive the service they, they required. And the other, there are many steps. And the second thing is they are all interdependent. One step depends on the, uh, the first step uh, will depend on what happens or the person downstream depends on the person upstream doing the right thing and vice versa. If, if anybody is not on board, the system doesn't work. So everybody needs to be on board. So this system, that's why the system has to be fully integrated. So uh, the, what I emphasize, as you know, lean is all about reducing waste, mm-hmm. non-value. So the problem has been, and we hear a lot about value-based care, the problem is that value equals Quality divided by cost. The problem is measuring quality. Mm -hmm. Every doctor thinks they are the best doctor in the world. Mm -hmm. Every health system says they're the best in the world. (laughs) And every system. Look at the billboards. You see the billboards. So 
it, and, and no one can argue with them. There are some measures, but they're very crude. So how do you define value? How can an individual physician define value? So what I have concluded is you ask one question, or you ask two, several questions. When you're doing something, when you're ordering a test, when you're uh, deciding on a procedure, you ask yourself, is this the value to my patient? Now, what do I mean by that? Will this diagnostic test or procedure improve the health and well-being of my patient? And if I were knowledgeable, as I am, as a physician, would I be willing to pay for it? Right. So if you can answer both those questions, yes, you should do it. If the answer is no, you should not do it. So looking at non-value and looking at waste um, and deciding on tests and procedures, I think is very critical. The other thing that I ask them to do is when you're doing, when you're uh, taking care of a patient, look at all the steps and see what steps you can get rid of. And again, you seem to ask the same question. For instance, uh, we uh, created a rounding system based on Toyota production system. And uh, initially, before I started it, what would happen on the rounds in the, uh, the teaching services is the, the patient, a very prolonged presentation would go on, usually took six, eight minutes with you know, the whole hospital course, the past medical history, the family history, the social history, every finding in the physical exam, every piece of lab data read off a patient sheet. And the reason that was done is we had paper records. So the attending had not been able to review the chart before. Well, then when we got electronic records, that did not change. So you can imagine if you have these prolonged presentations, rounds would take six, four, five hours. So the team would start at nine, they might finish at two. When did they have time to write the orders and get the consults and do all the things they needed to do? They could not do it. So now that we had electronic record, we needed to examine the way we were doing it and ask, was it a benefit to our patient? And the answer was clearly no. Mm. What should happen is, and what happens in the new rounding system is the attendings role, go one of his, uh, key things they need to do as part of their playbook or their protocol is they review the electronic records before they come on rounds. Therefore, the team, the intern or the medical student only needs to present the key new findings and uh, both uh, new symptoms, new uh, physical findings, new laboratory data, and focus on what their impression is, what's going on, whether the patient is getting better or worse, and what we're going to do about it that day. What is the plan for the day? And why are we making those plans? What that does, that reduces the presentation down to, if you do it in a, a very standardized approach, we use a problem-based SOAP, subjective, objective, assessment, plan, and then we also mention disposition. And we have videos on our website showing an intern presenting a case of pneumococcal pneumonia in one minute and 20 seconds rather than 10 minutes. So what happens is the average patient, when we do this and we involve the bedside nurse, so the nurse knows the plan for the day, we round in the room. So the patient who in our model is the team owner and the, uh, in our model, the attending is the coach, the senior resident is the quarterback or the could be the first violin if you want to use symphony. Uh, and the nurses 
are the string section or the offensive line. So if the quarterback, if the, if the offensive line doesn't know the play, the quarterback gets sacked. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it emphasizes that the nurses need to know the plan for the day and the team owner better know the plan for the day. And so we really encourage the, the, the patient to ask questions and to make sure they understand the plan that we actually write the plan for the day on, on, the, on a whiteboard. So what happens is on average, every patient can be managed in 10 minutes. Well, on the, the cap is 20 patients, but it turns out that if you are really look at the patients who are changing, uh, they're usually about 12 out of the 20 really have active problems and the others are, are waiting for placement or, or uh, something there's, or they're ready for discharge. And so you do not need to have the whole team decide, make decisions. So if you have 12 patients, <clears throat> 10 minutes each, that would mean that it would take two hours to complete rounds. And so we set as our goal each day to achieve complete rounds within two hours. We actually set up a, game plan or a schedule. And we know that we see the first patient at nine, the second patient at nine, 10, nine, 20, nine, 30, and we schedule it. And I have one of the medical students actually keep track of that schedule and lead us from patient to patient. Hmm. When we do that, rounds are completed in under two hours, which means then the, uh, the interns can write, um, and we write orders at the bedside. So we complete all the tasks at that time, during the time we're at the bedside, so the nurse hears it, the patient hears it, and then we go back and there, we wrap up any consults, get, get all our notes written, and make any adjustments. And as a result of this, the patient's length of stay dramatically drops. And our census right. drops very quickly to a manageable number. And, and that's really, that's, and, and, and for, I'm sure, you know, people from a lean background who are listening to you to t- listen to you talk about this realize, well, they're probably, you know, they're improving the way the rounding communication happens. They're eliminating non-value added um, communication. This is not racing through rounding, no. making rounding better. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, the patients feel we are spending more time with them. Because what, uh, what happens in routine rounds is they round out in the hall, spend forever doing the teaching out in the hall without the nurse present. Then they walk in for one minute and say, oh, this is what we're going to do today. See you later. We do everything in front of the patients to the patient. And we try to actually now our interns actually do not present to me or the resident. They present to the patient and they present in lay terms. So the patients are glued to the presentation they feel that they have gotten tremendous attention. A value, the key element of value is face-to-face time with the patient, face-to-face time with the nurse, the bedside nurse. We fulfill, we spend far more face-to-face time with the patient and with the nurse than any other rounding system, and yet we get through more quickly. And I can tell you the team feels like we're spending forever with the patients, and yet we finish uh, much more quickly than the other teams. Yeah. That's great. And well, so speaking of rounding, um, you, you, the next thing in your day is to go participate in rounds, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Every week I, uh, I go with our clinical manager. I, I'm an administrator on one of the floors as a physician 
And we just interview patients to ask them about their experience uh, if during their hospitalization, just open-ended question. And we uncover um, deficiencies and, and problems and systems errors. And then we uh, actively try to correct those based on our interviews. So we're one of the things that I do on rounds as well as we always ask at the end of rounds every day, what went well and what could be improved? And we're doing that on the ward continuously. So we're always asking and we always know that we can further improve. There's always more that can be done to make things better. Yeah. And, and, and I love uh, the idea of getting that direct patient feedback. Why rely on surveys when the patient is right there, part of the process, and we can get immediate real-time feedback from them just as we would want immediate real-time feedback from staff, right? Exactly. And the patients love that. The, lay, the patients feel they are heard just as I, you know, that's that survey of patients that were harmed. And, and when you communicate in that way, the likelihood of errors goes way, way down and the likelihood of ever being sued just is almost vanishes because you are partnering with the patient. You are shared this shared decision-making. So they understand the probabilities, they understand the risks and benefits and they help, they, they make the decision with you. And that's when uh, that shared decision-making I think is very important and fits very nicely into the lean approach where the customer is always number one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, we'll, we'll end on that note and let you get to your rounding. I I would love to do another podcast with you. We can, we can talk more about lean in depth if you're, if you're willing to do that. I would love to Mark. This is really enjoyable and I I hope this helps uh, further, further uh, lean in hospitals because I'm, I'm a firm believer. This is every hospital should be, uh, there should be, what, what, if looking at systems that have adopted lean, uh, what I found it probably you need one lean expert for every two beds. Hmm. That's what it requires. So that everybody, that way, the language, the principles are really implemented throughout. If you only have four or five lean experts, it won't work. You really need to train a large number of people in the, in the, in the, uh, the vocabulary and in the principles, and they are, as you know, most of them are common sense. This is not rocket science. But it requires the right styles, as, as you've touched on here, leadership and, and systems and environment to help yes. really put those lean practices to use and lean mind. I have to emphasize why. Why right. will this help? And when you do that, if you, you can never say, do it. You have to say why we need to do this. And if I think if you do that, physicians are very open when when they know the whys. Yeah. Well, um, I'll look forward to talking again, and I'll encourage listeners to go to the webpage for the episode. You can learn more about um, Fred's work, his articles, his Coursera courses, and uh, the book, uh, Critically Ill, A Five-Point Plan secure healthcare delivery. Um, so Dr. Fred Southwick um, has been our guest. Fred, thank you so much for, uh, for being here today. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.